Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello and welcome to episode 42 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Bands tend to live in each other's pockets when budgets are low. When there's more money around, everybody's got their own house, everyone's got their own limo. The bigger Bowie got in the Spiders era, the more remote he was from the band. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Marianne Faithful, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and David Bowie. There really was a diversity in all the stuff I was writing. A lot of it was absolute tosh, but some of it was really quite good. Memory's a strange thing. In this episode, as main man founder Tony DeFries looks back 50 years, continuing with his highlights of 1971, he describes the time he was invited to work with a Motown superstar. Early in 1971, I went to see Don Powell Hunter who had been, with Motown, operating as a manager. Now, Motown had a system where they had a number of acts, probably a score of acts, actually, many of whom were well-known, many of whom were not well-known, and they adopted a system of having a number of managers. And whenever a band needed to go on the road or go into some other location, or even when they were in the Motown studio, they would be assigned to a manager. So the managers might find themselves working with Gladys Knight one night, Four Tops another night, The Miracles, Smokey, or Stevie Wonder. And the decision as to which artist the manager worked with was largely a function of Motown's own internal admin. Don Hunter was the first white Motown manager. Came from a well-to-do family in Minneapolis. His father, actually, I think, had the largest auto dealership in Minneapolis, and they were very comfortable. Don was gay, but hadn't come out to his family. Remember, this is 71. People generally didn't come out. Most likely didn't come out to Motown either, but did become very close to... Steve Lund. Stevie Wonder was born and christened Steve Lund Hardway Judkins. He was discovered when he was six or eight years old, the dates vary, by Smokey Robinson, who was incidentally Barry Gordy's brother-in-law. So he married Barry Gordy's sister. And it was Barry and Smokey who had a lot to do with the beginnings of Motown. And of course, Smokey Robinson himself had this marvellous voice, huge amount of musical chops, and the miracles. 
so you couldn't really do better than that. Stevie had recorded, when I think he was about eight years old, a tune of his own composition, which he played on a drum, entirely on his own, and it was called Fingertips. It was fascinating for two reasons. First of all, because he was very young and he composed this wonderful bit of R&B music, but secondly, because he'd been blind since he was three years old. Here we have a Stevie Wonder in 1971 who will turn 21. His arrangement with Motown was a curious kind of contract. It's actually quite common in English law and was fairly common in the American legal system. And that is, when you're working with a minor, you, the employer, which in this case was Motown, require that your contract with the minor be supervised and approved by a judicial authority, i.e. a district court judge somewhere in the jurisdiction of Detroit, and that they have to represent the interests of the minor. So you can't contract directly with the minor because, of course, that would make it uh, that lovely phrase, void ab initio, because minors do not have a legal identity which allows them to enter into contracts. Hence, when Stevie turned 21, which was going to happen in May, he would be able to effectively walk away from Motown, sign his recording and publishing and writing and production and all his other activities to different entities or another entity. And why would Stevie do that? Well, there are a number of reasons. First of all, Motown had an even more impressive scheme of relieving artists of their money than I discovered earlier that year with the Schroders and Tony McCauley. That was just a straightforward publishing scam. Motown did this. They had a building in Detroit, which actually I think is still around. You can still go visit. <laughs> More of a museum piece now, but this was where it all happened. This building in Detroit had a basement, and there were two rooms that had been converted into studios down there. One was Studio A, and one was Studio B. Studio A was used for making tracks of songs that Motown wanted their artists to record. Studio B was used for doing vocals with those backing tracks. Because they had a pool of talent at their disposal, and many musicians you never hear of, actually, there are many, many session players at Motown who were 20 feet from stardom, the saying goes, who never really got recognition for what they'd done. And they were very much the bread and butter workers for Motown. They provided the music. But there are also many, including Stevie, of course, and including Smokey and including some others, who were talented writers, talented musicians. And so between all of these pools of talent, which you have to give Berry credit for, because ultimately he did round them up and sign them, but he was also massively controlling when Mary Wells, for example, didn't comply with Berry's current dictum. She was erased. No more records. And because of his hold on 
these acts who largely played in club venues. It was very difficult for someone like Florence Ballard, for example, to quit the Supremes. If you were in the Supremes, you were in the Supremes. And although Sarita Wright was supposed to be the lead singer of the Supremes, when she got engaged to Stevie and subsequently married him, Berry decided that it wouldn't be appropriate to have somebody who he effectively had lost his influence over because she was now influenced more by Stevie than she was by Berry. He replaced her with Diana Ross. My recollection is very clear that at his townhouse in Detroit, Stevie and Sarita played me the original recordings of all the original Supremes hit songs and hit recordings with Sarita providing what were called pilot vocals so Diana could follow along. Initially, Diana did not sing. There's a common practice in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s and 80s. Eventually there was a huge scandal (laughs) when a couple, a duo, won the Grammy Award for a recording which they hadn't sung on. And then, of course, it all came out that very often people doing concerts weren't singing, somebody else was singing. Very often the lead vocalist on a recording, and we've got our own example. Let's face it, we've got Freddie Baretti not singing on Arnold Collins. We've got David Bowie singing the Freddie Baretti part. (laughs) So it wasn't unusual, but in the case of Sarita Wright... It was remarkable to hear her doing Diana Ross. It wasn't Diana Ross doing Sarita. It was very definitely Sarita doing Diana Ross. So anyway, that, as I say, is another story. But at this point in time, I've never met Stevie. Don Hunter takes me backstage. Of course, he knows all the Motown folks, so he has no problem. And we go to Stevie's dressing room, and Don says... Hi, Stevie, this is the guy I told you about. And Stevie reaches out, finds my very abundant afro that I had at the time, (laughs) and says, OK. And then we begin to talk. We clear the dressing room and we talk. And later on, we go back to Stevie's hotel and we talk some more. We talk about, first of all, why is Stevie looking for alternatives to Motown? It turns out that Stevie is still, as far as Barry's concerned, little Stevie Wonder, a child prodigy who became a teenage prodigy who wrote Marsharia Moore when he was 15, I think, who's had a string of hits and who, because of his status, can be managed very easily on a limited amount of money because all, all Stevie wants are gadgets. He wants the latest bit of recording equipment. He wants the latest bit of playing equipment. Stevie's more than happy as long as he's got toys. And he doesn't realise that he's worth more. But what he does know is that he wants to make different music. He wants to make music that's got a different beat, a different feel, and especially that engages different topics. And these are much more adult topics than the ones that he's been singing about. He effectively wants to do real music. Barry doesn't want 
to break the mould. He doesn't want to change a working formula. And it's a winning formula. Here's what used to happen at Motown. Various performers, Smokey, Stevie and others, who were particularly adept at making recordings on multiple instruments. Almost all of them were multi-instrumentalists, especially Stevie. And those recordings would form the backing track. 27 artists, vocalists, groups, acts would then sing to those backing tracks in Studio B. And every one of them would be charged for the full cost of the backing track, which is, if you think about it, a marvellous swindle. Stevie had no idea of any of this because he didn't really appreciate until I met him that he was valuable, that his recordings could belong to him rather than to Motown, that sound recordings actually were capable of belonging to the individual who made them, not just the record company that paid for them. Songs that were written by a composer could belong to the composer, And songs that Stevie had been writing for many years were often credited to Berry Gordy as one of the co-writers or to other Motown folk who Stevie had never written a song with. Here's the problem. He did write some songs with Don Hunter. He did write some songs with his mom. Those were legit. He wrote some songs with Smokey Robinson. But there were a lot of songs that had six writers on and three of them were not involved in the writing of the song. They were, however, people connected to Berry and sometimes Berry himself. This was all news to Stevie because nobody had really explained this to him before. So over the next few days, we carried on talking about this and then we decided that, because he was going to have to leave and go back to the States and go back to Detroit, that... Don and I would come to America, continue the conversation with him in his little house in Detroit, get him a local attorney and start exploring what the alternative possibilities for Stevie were. It was explained to Stevie and Sarita, who were very much like children at this point, they had no idea what was really going on, that we would have to meet with the heads of various record companies in a unidentified way so that it wouldn't be possible for us to let Stevie out into the public eye once we were in New York meeting with record company executives or if we took him to California to meet with record company executives. He'd have to be very discreet. And this message was not well received because it was like, you know, I have to go to New York and I can't go out. And the answer is, yes, you have to come to New York and don't go out. (laughs) We rented a suite. We started seeing people. But before we began, Stevie had discovered that his tape recorder that contained the cassette of his new songs had run out of batteries. And he said, I'll just have to go and get some batteries for my tape recorder. I said, Stevie, you cannot leave the hotel. And he said, well, nobody will recognize me. He said, Stevie, of course. Of course, someone's going to recognise you. This is New York, and you're staying in a first-class hotel. You're not going to be invisible. Don said, I'll go and get the batteries, (laughs) and off he went. Now, to, to go back to how this really works is, 
I said to Don at the beginning, you know, we're going to have to get the Clives and the Armits and the Moes and Joes of the world, all these heads of major record companies, to do this in confidence. That won't be a problem because record companies are very accustomed, especially the executive level, of hearing about an artist who's unhappy, who wants to change their location or wants to do different music or whatever the reason. But if they're on that company's list, if they're on the list of the top five artists you'd sign if they were available, and Steve is clearly on that list, they will come without you even telling them who it is. You don't have to tell them who it is. All you have to do is let them know that you have one of those artists. And if they will meet you at a certain place at a certain time, you can explore it. But it can't be at any location that they would normally use, like an office or a public place. It has to be done undercover. So this was very much a covert operation that we were running. I would call up the Clive or the Armit or the Mo or the Joe or whoever else was interested and of course everybody was interested and although many of them didn't know who I was and some of them did as soon as I mentioned the possibility of one of those five I would sign them immediately if they were available artists even though they didn't know they might have guessed who it was but they didn't know who it was they said yes where do you want us to meet and when and they duly showed up and Stevie duly played them songs that later became songs in the key of life this was stevie wonder now what were we going to do what were don and i going to do to avoid being noticed so don said look you can come and stay at my parents house in minneapolis because they've got lots of room and stevie will go back to his house and if you and i come separately to detroit and then we can go from there Nobody will notice. And I said, are you sure, Don? Because it seems to me if we arrive in Detroit, you at least will be recognised. No, no, nobody knows who I am. I said, OK. Well, when we landed, of course, at Detroit Airport, we would landed around the same time as the Four Tops, Gladys Knight, um, and a few other Motown acts, and all of them immediately descended on Don. Hey, Don, how are you doing? Uh, what are you doing here? What's up? Um, and Don, of course, said, oh, I've just come back to visit my folks and... Uh, didn't introduce me to anybody, <laughs> which was uh, obviously discreet and very fortunate. But no doubt this got back to Berry, and we'll see why later on in this story. At any rate, we're in Detroit. It's early in the year. The snow is packed literally 12 foot high on either side of the road, but nobody in the upper echelons of Detroit, like Don and his parents ever bothers to wear any heavy clothing because they drive in and out of heated garages (laughs) into other heated garages to go and see whoever they're going to see and they have indoor swimming pools and other aspects that keep them massively comfortable so it never bothers them and so we could run back and forth from Minneapolis St Paul to Detroit quite easily and spend more time talking to Stevie and Sarita about the value. What was Stevie Wonder worth in 1971 for any kind of, just a recording contract? Lawrence and I discussed it 
and Norman. We obviously got Norman involved in this. Norman Kurtz, our New York attorney. And we came up with a number, which was $5 million. We didn't tell Stevie the number. What we told Stevie was that he could get free of Motown if he wanted to, and he could get other companies like CBS and Warners and whoever engaged in helping him make records and distributing those records, and he could get millions of dollars for that. And Stevie wasn't really clear about what millions of dollars were, so we had to explain that to him as well. When we flew out to the West Coast, and I, don't, I say we, I mean Don and I and Norman and Lawrence went out to the West Coast. We didn't take Stevie with us for obvious reasons. And we went to see Mo Austin and Joe Smith, who were the Mo and Joe of Warner Records. Mo Austin was an accountant, but he was mostly a bookkeeper. And one of his clients was this chap called um, Frank Sinatra who, of course, was making movies with Warners, and Warner wanted to put out soundtracks. They started a label called Reprise, which was designed specifically to put out music from the movies that Sinatra featured in. And Frank didn't trust anybody, had strong connections to the mob, literally, and so he said, A, I want a stake in the label and that was negotiated and he ended up with I think 20 or 30 percent somewhere in there and I want this guy Mo Austin to be in charge and so along came Mo and he hired Joe Smith as his second in command because Mo didn't really know anything about the record industry and Joe did so it's a very good team anyway we sat down we began the conversation about our mystery guy who by this time they knew was Stevie Wonder. And Joe said, we just want you to know that the numbers don't scare us. This is sort of record company talk for saying, don't worry about asking for a big advance. Lawrence leapt up to the moment and said, well, we're thinking about five million, but of course that's just for recording. That doesn't include production or songwriting or anything else. That's just for recording. And Norman and I looked at each other and honestly nearly burst out laughing because it was like Lawrence had been telling us the whole flight over from New York how we couldn't ask for too much and we couldn't look for too rich a deal. And here all of a sudden he's like reaching out for the richest possible deal. But it didn't phase Mo and Jeremy went on having the conversation with them. All these meetings and conversations were subsequently relayed back to Stevie. We had found him a local lawyer in St. Paul, I think, who he met with because we needed to be sure that if he turned 21, we could have a contract with him, but we couldn't actually sign him up to a contract until he turned 21. I felt it's very important to show that there was no undue influence, that we didn't persuade him to do anything, that he had independent legal advice. So we got that attorney to draw up a management agreement between Stevie Wonder and myself. That management agreement was never signed, but here it is, the unsigned version, which has remained in the main man archives until now, 50 years on. We also found a more experienced music business attorney called Joe Vigoda, 
and we introduced Stevie to him so that there would be somebody on Stevie's team who could effectively negotiate with Motown if he decided to stay there. That was effectively the last step in working with Stevie in terms of saving him from a continued existence at Motown, giving him essentially the opportunity to create new music, music that would become Songs in the Key of Life and all those subsequent marvellous albums that he made. So in that sense, I saved Stevie Wonder. I gave him the tools he needed in that short period of time, a few months, that enabled him to then say to Gordy, this is what I want and this is what you have to agree to, otherwise I'll leave. And, of course, Barry agreed and he created an independent publishing company and label for Stevie going forward. So how this story ends is uniquely Motown. Stevie was in New York doing a series of concerts, city and local, and he had, or Motown had, taken up three floors of the Hilton Hotel on 6th Avenue in New York, and the floors above and below Stevie were full of cousins, relatives, and Motown staffers. So it was out of reach for us to go and have another chat. (laughs) Shortly before his 21st birthday, we made inquiries at the hotel and they said no Motown folk were registered anymore. Everyone had literally, if you like, stolen away in the dead of night, taking Stevie with them. A few months later, we got a note from Stevie and from his attorney saying thanks for all we did and he recognised that we might have incurred substantial expenses and if we told him what they were, he would reimburse them. And Lawrence gave him a breakdown of what we'd spent and we duly got reimbursed. But I honestly believe that without that input and without the ability to tell Berry that he could extract himself, that he could leave, he would not have been able to go on and make the music that he made because that was music that Barry didn't recognise as being important, but Stevie did. Stevie wanted it to be heard. Somewhere in that space, some of my old underground criminal acquaintances (laughs) told me that they had been asked by some of their American counterparts to execute a contract of the wrong sort on me. And we can't say for sure that it came from Berry, but it seems very likely that the only reason anyone would want me out of the way at that point in time was because I was interfering with an artist that they wanted to protect in the wrong possible way, the worst possible way. So I essentially hid out in London for a while between the time Stevie disappeared and the time we heard back. That's my Stevie Wonder story. A lot more colour and detail at some point in the future. Tony DeFries recalling the time in 1971 when he worked with Stevie Wonder. 
There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of mainman documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the mainman label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. You'll find that at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, DeFreeze continues his recollections of 1971, in particular the summer of 71, when he and David Bowie met many of Andy Warhol's inner circle, who had become key members of the Main Man team as Bowie blitzed America the following year. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.